This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Mr. Show, no problems on point and on the podcast. The Montreal Canadiens sign a draft pick who just came out saying, don't draft me because I'm not worthy. His crime? Well, he posted pictures of a woman he had sex without her permission. So will this come back to haunt him or the Montreal Canadiens? We will talk about that. Ceases breaking its silence, telling Canadian universities stop taking money and turning a blind eye to foreign actors who may be putting our national security at risk. So we'll talk about why they are kind of taking this unprecedented step of speaking out. And who is Mary Simon and why does she call herself a grumpy little old lady? We'll talk about her historic appointment and what it means for reconciliation. Let's get talking. Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. Stole many a man's soul and faith. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. I am honored, humbled, and ready to be Canada's first Indigenous Governor General. I was born Jeannie, Mary Jeannie May in Arctic Quebec, now known as Nunavik. My Inuk name is Ninukarlak, and Prime Minister, it means bossy little old lady. <laughs> Well, maybe that little bossy lady can keep our Prime Minister in check. Alex Pearson with you on this Monday, July 26. I hope you had a terrific weekend. Here we go into yet another work week, albeit the hardest of this day is over. But what an historic day in this country. Swearing in our first Indigenous Governor General. I like her. That's it. I like her. Uh, She seems like a pretty impressive woman. She's got a sense of humor, which I like. Uh, French people may not like the choice, but I think uh, I think Canadians will like her. And it is clear that Mary Simon has plenty of experience, and she also seems pretty level-headed. So all she has to do is not be Julie Payette, and she will be a raving success. And uh, during her speech, she made very clear she's excited, she's humbled to live in the house, not good enough for Payette. And so she and her husband, very handsome couple, I might uh, say, are going to be moving into Rideau Hall with their little dog, Nevin. And already, that, that's a, look, that's a win. Payette, she didn't live there at all. But in her rule, new rule, role, um, here's how the Governor General actually sees some of the things she can do. I have been deeply touched by the responses from Canadians who have reached out to me. I I have heard from Canadians who describe a renewed sense of possibility for our country and hope that I can bring people together. I have heard from Canadians who have challenged me to bring a new and renewed purpose to the office of the Governor-General to help Canadians deal with with the issues we are facing. So is she 
right pick for the right time? I actually think she is. I think, um, I think she's a very strong choice, period. She just is. I mean, let us not forget, we have a new governor general because Justin Trudeau insisted on hiring an inexperienced astronaut because it was cool, and uh, Julie Payette to, proved a disaster. So really, as I said, all Simon's got to do is be nice, and she's gold. But let's keep in mind, you know, her appointment is because Justin Trudeau chose crazy over substance. Can you imagine where we'd be if she just put her in at the beginning? You know, and while her role, you know, is seen as ceremonial, she's going to be getting a visit from the prime minister likely very soon because the rumor mills spin in that August 16th will be the day that the writ drops and the election gets underway. Nothing is, of course, you know, in stone. But let's just cut the crap. The election campaign's underway now. I mean, Trudeau's out campaigning across this country daily, and he's going to continue handing out bags of money as long as he can before pulling the plug. Because why would you want to campaign on your dime when you can do it on ours? And yes, I know the other parties are also out campaigning, but they're footing their bills, so I don't really care what they do. And all governing parties do this. Those in charge do this. Well, they shouldn't. I hear that all the time. Well, the other Stephen Harper did this, Paul Martin did Yeah, great. They shouldn't. We shouldn't be okay with any of these governing parties campaigning on our time or on our dime. That is not the, the job of the taxpayers. That's why they fundraise. And it's not like there's nothing going on. The Trudeau government right now should be solely focused on dealing with this pandemic and recovery. But it has been clear for months and months and months that Trudeau sees this thing as an opportunity. You know, he's been using this crisis to push his agenda. You know, he paints himself as the guy who's got our backs. And he hasn't wasted any time shoring up his base with popular financial programs that reward those who really shouldn't have gotten a cent and, and, and left small businesses scrambling for help, which either arrived very late or not at all. And up until now, pretty much, in the last week or so, the popular narrative is that Trudeau's going to be getting a majority. You know, Canadians think he's done a good job during the pandemic. Well, apparently that opinion's changing because we've now seen a couple of polls, and I don't put all polling in the same league. There are some that are good. There are some that are I only really look at a couple. Uh, but we've seen a couple that, that suggest his support is softening. And over the weekend, Ipsos did some polling for globals, and their numbers seem to confirm it, that not only have the Conservatives closed the gap at the NDP, have this growing support. People love Jugmeet singing, doing TikTok. That's how he's going to campaign, all on TikTok. They like the cute. No substance, but it's cool, I guess. And uh, the block also has solid support, and both of them will chip away at Trudeau's dream of having this coveted majority that will give him all the power he desperately wants so he can push in his Build Back Better campaign and hide all of his scandals. The problem that the Liberals have is that they've got to find a place where they're going to pick up enough votes, they're going to establish enough gap between themselves and their main opponent uh, from the last election campaign. And, and so far, they haven't really found that. In Ontario, what we're seeing is that uh, the race has also tightened up. There's only an eight-point gap between them and the Conservatives. And that key 905 section, if we were to break it out into the, the city and the suburbs, you'd see that the suburbs were pretty close. That's a, a region that the Liberals swept last time around with a pretty big lead. So, you know, it's not going to happen there. They already won just about every single seat there. That is Ipsos uh, President Daryl Bricker. 
And um, a lot of people have written Aaron O'Toole off. They don't, they don't like him. He's boring. They don't think he's got a vision. I do think that narrative will change once the campaign starts because for what charisma he actually you know, lacks, he makes up for in brains. I have to hope. I really have to hope that people are tired of having a celebrity in charge. Frankly, I just want someone who will shut up, go away, and do the job. That's it. Just do the, do the damn job. But O'Toole also has a couple of advantages over Trudeau. First of all, his war chest is very full. He has out-fundraised his competition by a long, by a long, long, long way. And the base is motivated. So sure, they grumble about O'Toole, but at the end of the day, the conservative base will hold their nose if it means ridding of Trudeau. And so while Trudeau may seem to think now is the time to pull the plug, the polling suggests he could be wrong. Because the bottom line is, who wants an election? Not me. I don't care if we have elections normally, but I don't want one, I don't want one right now. I mean, the majority of us don't see the need for an election, but we're tired. Like, I'm tired. Aren't you tired? I mean, we had an election less than two years ago. Why do we need another one? Certainly right now, we don't need one. I mean, people right now just want to get an idea of, you know, getting kids back to school, what a possible fourth wave might cause us. And so Trudeau runs a risk of the progressive vote tuning out and staying at home. Because many are going to rightly ask, what are we voting for? Like, what's the ballot question? Why do we need this election other than the fact that Trudeau just wants his power back? But what is the actual ballot box issue? I do not know. And so you're going to hear over and over and over and over and over and over. It's because we must build back better. Just build back better, build back better. Just get used to hearing that. It's going to become so nauseating. That's all you're going to hear. But that's what he's selling, that we've got to build back better. I don't even know what it means, but we've got to do it, apparently. But in pushing for this unnecessary election, he could be headed to building little more than the power that he's got now. So what's the point? We will discuss. We will discuss this and many other things. We've got a busy show tonight. Uh, we're going to talk about Derek Sloan, <laughs> set to announce his own party. Because that's exactly what we need in this country. We need another fringe group to split the vote on the right and accomplish nothing. Way to go. Slow clap. Yay. Ugh. Been remorseful about the incident, which we uh, truly uh, don't agree with it uh, in, uh, in all sense of the word. But uh, he needs, uh, he's a young man uh, who made a serious mistake. That is the Montreal Canadiens general manager, Mark Bergeron, defending the draft pick of Logan Mayu. And a lot of people will see this move as indefensible. And we were just chatting about Mayu just a couple of days ago. He issued this statement saying that he doesn't deserve to be drafted. And this was after news came out that he'd been charged and convicted in Sweden last year for distributing a sexual photo without consent. The actual sexual act was consensual. But the victim says she didn't consent to it being shown around. And she also came forward to the NHL and basically told the teams, don't sign this young guy. Nonetheless, the Canadians saw it differently and they picked Mayu. And they expected some blowback to the decision. And boy, are they ever getting it. Lauren Honickman is our global news radio legal expert. I also know you play a lot of hockey. 
Um, but you are also one of those in law that knows an awful lot about things that go online in um, things like, uh, you know, the laws as far as defamation and, and, li- and libel and all those things. So I wanted to ask you a few stuff on that. So good to have you. Yeah, it's good to talk about this. You know, we, as you said, we talked about this last week on, you know, with, with Kelly. And uh, we were saying, oh, wow, this young man is going to keep himself out of the draft. And, you know, he seems like he wants to improve himself, etc. And then we were saying, well, maybe next year he can go back. And then this happened. And uh, it was pretty, it was, you know, it was quite surprising. Uh, I know a lot of people around the NHL and people following it are using words unconscionable and lots of other things. Um, but apparently the NHL has no mechanism for players to withdraw their candidacy. So, uh, but all the other teams passed over and the uh, Montreal yeah. Canadiens decided, no, they're going to do it. So, but, but to your point, Alex, from the legality point of view, I, I, I think, I don't know the laws over there in Sweden, but he was charged with distributing a sexual photo without consent, and he paid fines, I think, some, what was it, about $5,000 mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. Uh, he certainly would be facing a lot more serious consequences here if that had happened here. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, it will be interesting to see whether or not this, this woman decides to take legal action here uh, and yeah. see whether or not she wants to file a lawsuit here in Canada. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it appears that Sweden treats these kinds of crimes as, you know, you uh, more of a fine where you get a fine, whereas here it's a criminal matter and you can get into an awful lot of time, including jail time uh, for this kind of, 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 of crime. Um, and so, yeah, what happens now? Have the Montreal Canadiens then open themselves up to some kind of um, lawsuit? Is the league looking at a lawsuit? I mean, this, this could go any which way because at the end of the day, she's still a victim of this thing. You're not supposed right. to distribute pictures of anyone naked without their permission, period, end of discussion. And this guy came out, and I think it was more an exercise in his part, uh, Lauren, to kind of sanitize the situation, get ahead of a bad story. But this thing's going to follow the Montreal Canadiens around no matter what. But but you know what it's like. It'll follow them around for a certain period of time. Uh, you know, they came out with some statements afterwards about, you know, that they're going to be doing lots of things and all sorts of, you know, a lot of it, not not very specific. You didn't get really, like, any, spe- uh, any specifics of what they're going to do. And I don't think this woman would have any cause of action against Montreal. I, in fact, I don't think Montreal, from a legal point of view, has exposed itself to any any problems that is, of course, if if this person were to quote reoffend or whatever, uh, but certainly I think that he may be getting like he certainly is not out of the woods from a civil potential civil right. point of view. Um, and his value, by the way, has just gone up substantially. And I, and there may be a mechanism that they can't get out of the draft, albeit I don't see how if he really truly Lauren felt that he should not be deemed worthy of the NHL, he could always say to Montreal, I, I'm not going to ink this deal because once he right. does. He's worth millions more than he was. Or he could say, I'll ink this deal, uh, but we'll make sure, you know, we'll agree that I won't come, you know, I won't go to training camp this year. I'm going to waive my first year. You know, I mean, Mm -hmm. he could do a whole series of things. But, you know, obviously, and I think we even sort of alluded to this in our discussion about what's going on behind the scenes with his management team. Like, you know, who knows whether or not 
his management team had been contacted by Montreal beforehand. We don't know that. But assuming now that he's drafted, uh, you can rest assured, Alex, that they're all sitting together going, okay, we're going to get a lot of blowback here. There's going to be a lot of pushback. And what are we going to say about this? And how are we going to say it? And, uh, and, 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 and I think that they, didn't they even come out and say that he meets with, quote, a lady psychiatrist a couple times a week, which is mm. kind of a weird way of putting it. But anyway, um, and, and so, and they said the team has a plan, but they didn't really say what that plan is. And so, yeah, so the plan, it's the plan is to win with their new defenseman. And I think that that's how people see this. You know, it's like in the name of sports, they're going to take who they take, regardless of what the reputation is or past um, indiscretions have been. And so, you know, a lot of people saw this as like one step. We get we get one step forward, and then we go several steps back. But okay, but let's and play devil's advocate for a moment. And you are you are this young boy. He's like what eighteen years old. Well, he's not that young. He's eighteen. I mean, okay, and okay. I'm not looking to get his career destroyed. But it just his message no, I, last I, week and the draft pick they just don't add up. Right. And so what? What I you know, and I think that's where the problem was is that last week when he said he's going to take, he comes right out and says he's going to take a year off. My reaction was when I read the fact that the league has no mechanism for that, would he not have known that beforehand? Would not somebody have said, you know, you can't take it, you can't take it you, uh, a year off from the draft, so don't say that because you're going to be, you could be drafted. Maybe there, you know, there's a lot of maybes here, but, but look at it this way. Whatever he did was wrong, obviously. Um, it, he, he was dealt with under Swedish law. It's not his fault that Swedish law is the way it is. So he was dealt with it. Uh, he was fine the way they find people in Sweden. Um, and so somebody would say, okay, so he did what he had to do pursuant to the laws there. You know, it would mm-hmm. be it would be the same thing if, you know, and, you know, we always talk about the difference in sentencing in the U.S. You know, we, we would how how more stringent it is in the U.S., but you wouldn't say, well, you know, if it was in the U.S., you'd go to jail for, for you know, 20 years for that. And so, so we're comparing different jurisdictions. So the argument, what I'm just saying is, there could be an argument made that how, where he committed this crime, he has now been dealt with. Um, now, I understand that, you know, he, he says he apologized, but I understand the, the victim of this act has come out and saying, well, the apology was really some sort of, what, three-line text or something like that. Yeah, it's a PR, yeah, it's a PR yeah. thing. But the thing is, his notoriety and his, I mean, if he was a nobody-nothing and he, like, you know, this story would have just gone away. Now right. everybody knows about it. And so the damage to her becomes that much worse. Well, it, it, it does. In a, in, a, in a way, you can see that of how, you know, it's sort of like if he had actually taken that year off or whatever, you know, maybe it, it, would, have, it would have made a difference to her uh, if he had apologized in a more proper form or a proper way. But, but right now, you know, he, you know, I guess he's just getting advice from all over the place. You can imagine that. I, again, I don't know if he's making these decisions right now on his own. Uh, the Montreal Canadiens are going to have a PR issue. Uh, but yep. you and I talk about this a lot. You know, today's news, tomorrow's fish wrap, you know, the old expression. Yeah. And so people are talking about it now, and maybe they'll talk about it when the season starts, if he shows up at training camp. And, and then uh, maybe it will dissipate. And that's how it'll go. But, it, but from a legal point of view, the only potential legal ramification, and I underline potential a thousand times, is if this particular victim decided that she was going to pursue something civilly against him. 
And, I'll, I'll uh, put my money on it that 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 she does, but that's just my opinion. Um, but you know, you got to wonder. If, I know this kid is said to be very good, um, and no, I don't think his career should be destroyed. But you got to wonder. I mean, is it really worth this much trouble uh, for a for a franchise like uh, the Montreal Canadiens? Yeah, I, it, it, it was pretty surprising to see. You know, because everybody, because he would have been, from what I understand, he would have been drafted high under normal uh-huh. conditions. He never would have been the mm-hmm. 31st pick in that yeah. draft. And so everybody yeah. sort of just went, they knew he was available and everybody passed on it. And the Canadians didn't. Um, yeah. And they may have just said, we'll take the blowback. We'll take all the bad PR. And, uh, and at this time next year, people hopefully will forget about it. That's maybe what they're thinking. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. They might want to get better lawyers because if this goes into a civil uh, court in Canada, it's going to get a whole lot uglier and it's going to fall away for years. But then again, I I don't know if they have any legal exposure at all. I doubt they do. But hey, listen, you can throw laws at anybody. So we'll see. Time will tell. All right. That's why you're a Leaf fan, I guess. But uh, we won't won't blame you for that either. (laughs) There's a lot of different reasons. (laughs) Lauren, appreciate your time on this. Thank you. Okay. That is Lauren Honigman, our global news radio legal expert. So stay tuned to that. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Why is CSIS warning Canadian universities to be on alert for international espionage? Well, because they have to. Because over the years, Canadian universities have proved that they're very willing to take risks and even encourage openness and international collaboration with countries like China and other bad actors, and then they pay no attention to the national security implications that these relationships are posing to this country. And CSIS does this, if ever, very rarely. But it is sounding the alarm to these post-secondary institutions right across the country, warning them that these partnerships could lead to foreign agents getting into our labs, taking our intellectual properties, And their great concern is the potential threat of dual-use technology, which could have a military application in addition to its civilian uses. Christian Luprecht is a professor at both the Military College of Canada and Queen's University. He's also a fellow at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, and he's got a new book coming out called Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, and that is on uh, on point with this particular topic. Good to have you. I'll look forward to that book, Christian. Good evening, Alex. So we will, um, so let's talk about this, because we're not talking about stopping scientific collaboration. This is really about changing attitudes of universities, which in this country have been very, very keen to take international money, which is a lot. It's a billion dollars a year. And what they don't seem to care about is the sacrifice of what's happening in this country. So why all of a sudden is CSIS speaking out and breaking its silence? So this is not a new problem. We've known about this problem for uh, well over uh, half a dozen years 
Um, it's been a public issue since 2018 when the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, published an extensive data set and paper um, which showed, among other things, that uh, Canadian universities, three Canadian universities in particular, uh, were in the top 10 in terms of scientific collaborations with high-risk institutions in China, that is to say, institutions that are either part of the military or close to the military, uh, where those collaborations are likely to lead to the exploit of dual-use technologies. Interestingly enough, not a single U.S. institution was in those top 10. And so one of the inferences that we can draw is that there are actually things that we can do to try to impede um, some of the attempts at espionage and improper intellectual property. Um, uh, transfer and transfer of processes, uh, operating procedures, and so forth. Uh, what has really, I think, then driven this home is the pandemic, where on the one hand, we saw very aggressive measures by uh, both Russia and China, but also other countries, um, uh, both to try to get a leg up by um, uh, pilfering uh, some of the research that is generated uh, in this country and also abusing some of these collaborations and at the same time the very aggressive stance by the Trump administration to uh, identify individuals that were high risk that might have lied on their visa applications uh, and either to throw them out of the country or to uh, prosecute them and so I think this combination then um, and the changing political climate uh, when it came to China uh, emboldened thesis to become much more vocal and much more public uh, about a threat uh, vector that has been uh, well known and well documented for some years. Yeah, and look, we we seem to be slowly opening our eyes. I'm hoping that we are. Um, you know, we've got the Winnipeg lab uh, with a lot of questions and a lot of secrecy about, you know, Chinese scientists being allowed to go in there from the military. Um, as you said, we know that the universities have been doing this, these partnerships for a long time with little kind of care about national security interests. We also saw during the pandemic when they went in um, and were trying to to interfere and, and steal secrets from our, our vaccine, you know, uh, work that we were doing. Um, and as as CSIS points out, you know, the spies today that we're looking at are, are more apt to wear a lab coat than a trench coat. And I think that's sort of the changing nature of this environment and something that uh, especially Canadian universities, I think, have been uh, a bit naive and impervious to, uh, that much of the game in terms of international espionage is uh, not being played in the cloak and dagger fashion, but it's being played in terms of uh, influence over politician, in terms of sending individuals over here uh, that masquerade um, as legitimate researchers but really have been co-opted by the intelligence services or are actually directly working and have act actively been trained um, uh, by, uh, uh, by military or intelligence uh, um, uh, agents. And so I think there's a... a there's there's we're behind the ball in Canada just generally in terms of uh, our security posture and our realization that the world has changed significantly and that we ultimately risk becoming complicit uh, in the advancement of some uh, extremely heinous technology everything from that'll enable everything from surveillance capabilities that facilitate egregious um, large-scale human rights abuses to some very dangerous military technology, everything from hypersonic 
uh, missiles mm. to um, to bio warfare uh, efforts by our adversaries. At the same time, we also have to realize that um, on on some issues, China is clearly, for instance, an adversary. On others, we need to work yeah. and collaborate with China. If we think about climate change, we're clearly not going to make inroads uh, without a cooperative and collaborative approach with China. And so being becoming more nuanced and more aware of where we need to pay closer attention and where there are high-risk areas uh, versus areas where we actually may want to double down in terms of uh, opportunities for collaboration while at the same time, of course, still safeguarding the investment that the Canadian taxpayer has made in intellectual property uh, because we know that some of that intellectual property has aggressively been exfiltrated uh, by some of those adversaries. And we know from polling that is not uh, just kind of a one-off. Um, over the last few years, Canadians' opinions on China has drastically changed. I mean, it's a huge majority of this country that want our relationship with China to be changed. Um, a lot of Canadians don't want to do business with China anymore uh, because of the human rights violations, because of what they did with the Michaels, because they now are starting to see this as a national security threat. Uh, but the Trudeau government this month, you know, just this month, maybe they're starting to read the polls, um, you know, in light of these national security risks and assessments now are going to require, um, you know, those doing these research projects to actually be um, screened. They have to actually prove that they're not putting the government or the country at risk in order to get any of this money from the government to run. So maybe they are catching on. Yeah, there's a couple of challenges. One is, of course, that post-secondary education, by and large, is provincial jurisdiction. And so the federal government yeah. is always reticent to meddle uh, in provincial uh, jurisdiction. Uh, the other is that the federal government also wants to continue to assure uh, free um, and independent academic research um, and not dictate uh, what research is to be done and how that research is to be done. And so I think the approach that CSIS is taking is CSIS doesn't like to get uh, too active on university campuses. And so they're trying to take a bit of a more decentralized approach to have the institutions be more aware on the one hand. And on the other hand, they're somewhat replicating in a very mild and homeopathic manner the approach that Australia has taken uh, uh, where researchers have to register um, every project that meets a certain pro risk profile uh, with international collaborators so that the Commonwealth government in Australia has visibility on this project and is able to act on them. And so here we have a much more limited remit, which is that initially it's just the National uh, Science and Engineering Research Council of Canada, uh, where the projects will be scrutinized um, and an ability for um, the federal government to identify high-risk projects on the front end. But, of course, what we'll also need to do is make sure that if we're going to impose uh, certain uh, restrictions and protections that need to be in place for those projects, that we have proper auditing, that these are actually being met by the researchers right. that carry out these projects. But this is Canadian taxpayer money, um, and inherently the government is responsible for what happens with that money, uh, the results from that money, and uh, how those results are leveraged by our partners. And so we need to make sure that, uh, uh, that Canadians have reassurance uh, that the investments that they are making in their research uh, doesn't uh, advance um, uh, technological uh, developments in adversarial countries uh, with which Canadians fundamentally disagree. Yeah, well, it's a start, but uh, more focus needs to be in this country on the long game.
because we need to replicate what our enemy does, play for the long game. All right, Christian, I will uh, continue talking about these stories because they keep coming up, and I appreciate your uh, insight into this. Thanks for drawing attention to this key matter and uh, for having this conversation about a complex issue that uh, affects us all. Absolutely, it does. That is Professor Christian Luprecht, who, of course, we know from Queen's University, also at the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, but he's got a new book coming out in the fall on this particular kind of area called Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. So uh, once that comes along, we will uh, have him on to talk about that. To meet this moment as Governor General, I will strive to hold together the tension of the past with the promise of the future in a wise and thoughtful way. Our society must recognize together our moments of regret alongside those that give us pride because it creates space for healing, acceptance, and the rebuilding of trust. I will strive to build bridges across the diverse backgrounds and cultures that reflect our great country's uniqueness and promise. Her name, Mary Simon, or as uh, she said during her speech, Mary Jeannie May, which in uh, Inuk language translate to bossy little old lady. She got a good chuckle out of that, uh, mainly by herself. Like, she, she thought that was also very funny, so she got a good little chuckle. And um, already, Mary Simon, I think to a lot of people, is seen as the right choice, the right time. She made very clear that her appointment um, is one to king, you know, bring the country together at a time when emotions run high. And she also pledged not just to work on reconciliation issues, but um, she wants Canadians to get to know each other. And she also said she will work on issues of mental health, taking the stigma out of mental health. And um, the other job she'll have is, while it'll be mainly ceremonial, I mean, in just a couple of weeks, she'll likely be called on by the Prime Minister to dissolve Parliament and we will head into an election. David Onley, former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, joining us. You were the Lieutenant Governor, sir, from 2007 to 2014. Great to have you. Thank you. Always a pleasure. What a day. It's historic. I mean, she's the first Indigenous leader uh, in the Governor General role. Um, you know, she's very complimentary to this country, not divisive at all in the tone that no. she uh, put out. Um, she's not new to politics. I mean, she's got a really long, long resume. You know, she she's done a lot of work with um, tree rights. You know, she's yeah. done a lot of work in, uh, you know, she went head to head with Pierre Elliott Trudeau in 1984 over gender equity. I mean, she has served as a couple of ambassadors, including uh, to Denmark. She's not a beginner. Not at all. And, uh, you know, I was checking some uh, YouTube videos from the past uh, of her involvement in a number of projects. And there's one where she appears 13 years ago um, mm -hmm. in the House of Commons presenting a paper. Well, I mean, first of all, to get to the Commons for any kind of uh, a non-elected function, you have to have achieved something. And, and she certainly had. And, and read her remarks with uh, uh, dignity and grace. And, you know, you could see even back then, 13 years ago, that this was a, a person who um, certainly had skill sets that most people don't have. Most people, mm -hmm. even those in politics, don't have. I think it's important to note as well that while she was selected um, by the selection committee that um, Justin Trudeau's 
people put together. She was on the short list mm-hmm. for the uh, group that uh, Stephen Harper put together, uh, who ended up selecting Stephen Harper, ended up selecting uh, David Johnston. But Mary Simon was on that list. So mm-hmm. you have the unusual situation, and I think it speaks very well of her, of a conservative government with a conservative selection committee drawing up a short list for the PM to consider. And a number of years later, um, a liberal prime minister with a liberal selection committee draws up another short list. And guess who's on the same list? Mary Simon. yeah, and, and she's had a fascinating life. I mean, she straddled two worlds. She was raised in Indigenous traditions, um, but her father was white um, and a very accomplished guy at that. So she learned a lot in on both sides, and I think that's why she looks at herself, um, you know, and I'm not putting words into her mouth, but I think she yeah. sees herself as a bridge builder. Oh, very much so. And, I mean, if you really want some uh, fantastic reading, Go online and check out the life story of her her father, Mr. May. I mean, he's a character like uh, like make Call of the Wild look like it was a nursery. Uh Uh, This guy was a bush pilot, uh, an adventurer. He was um, the general manager of uh, Hudson's Bay Outpost up in northern Quebec. Uh, he literally rescued the lives of two of his children by um, taking a canoe across icy waters with a tiny little engine, putt-putting his way across. <laughs> um, it's just the stuff of great adventures. And if, you know, some uh, scriptwriter doesn't pull together um, an amazing production, they're missing out on the opportunity. So... She was a part of that process, and as I heard in one interview, she talked about, you know, waking up, uh, uh, being out in the with her family in the tent, uh, hearing the crunch of feet in the snow because uh, someone had gotten up ahead of time and 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 laying on the pine uh, branches uh, as her mattress, uh, and you just go, this is a, this is an adventurer, a, a woman who's led an adventurous life. And, you know, mm-hmm. we tend to think of Canada, and rightly so, as an East-West nation, because we are so big. Uh, you know, to get from B.C. to Vancouver, we to uh, the Maritimes, we look at our weather patterns going west to east. Um, so that's normal. But, you know, yeah. she just really brings to mind that, in fact, we must also look at ourselves as a North-South nation. And she does address that today. Uh, yeah. In her remarks, and, and for sure, that's going to continue to be addressed, um, not just as it pertains to uh, climate change, but uh, as it pertains to the well-being of Indigenous people. And, and added to that, uh, given the fact of, as to where she has come from, um, she is going to be able to interact with all of the other Indigenous people in this country in, in a way that just quite frankly, I think very, very few other people uh, who would be qualified otherwise to be governor general would be capable of doing. So I think for it would appear that she seems to be the, the right person for these times. And, yeah, uh, and I've got to wish her the best of luck. 
Yeah, I find her quite fascinating. I find, uh, you know, she and her husband a handsome couple. Um, yeah. You know, we want her to do well. I've got about 40 seconds left, uh, David. Yep. Do you think as a role of Governor General, she will be more political than ceremonial in this job, or will she stick to the to the ceremonial <laughs> side? Well, <laughs> I, I think that any uh, person that starts off in the position reminding the Prime Minister that her name, name means bossy <laughs> little old lady, I, I would say gently in a friendly way, please look out. <laughs> so Yeah, there you go. Yeah. He, he kind of chuckled, he kind of didn't, but nonetheless, I yeah. guess he'll find yeah, out how exactly. bossy she is when, he, did, when he drops did. the writ. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a pleasure, David. I appreciate your time so much on this, and I know you've got a bit of time in your hands, so maybe you can write that documentary. You've got the journalistic yeah. uh, chops to, to boot, so maybe. Uh, well, if you're bored, you maybe you can do Always that. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. That is uh, former Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, David Onley, who's very familiar with this uh, job and what it entails and uh, has some fascinating background into that. Uh, By the way, the Governor General also will head the military at a time when it is nothing short of chaos. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. You, of course, can listen live Monday through Friday starting 6.30 sharp. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Pearson on Point, and this is Global News Radio.